Thank you very much, John. And thanks to Kevin and the team for leading us in worship and Joe and the Christmas choir. So good to be together today. And it is lovely to see all of you on this first third week of Advent. If you're new here or just new in a little bit, my name is Sandy. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm really glad to be here with you. And if you know me well, or let's face it, even if you have met me ever, then you know that I'm a person who really loves Christmas. For the past month, all of my socks have been Christmas socks, and my music has been Christmas music, and my earrings have been Christmas earrings, and my sweaters have been Christmas sweaters, and my coffee has been Christmas coffee, and even the breakfast cereal that I choose to eat right now are those Christmas-colored Rice Krispies that don't taste very good, but they're festive. And all of this just brings me a lot of joy, partially because I am an intolerably festive person, but more importantly, because it forces me to be confronted in my everyday life, everywhere I look, with tangible reminders that in Jesus, God stepped into our ordinary lives. And so for all of my festive sweaters and colorful ornaments, the place where my heart has really been resting this Advent season is in the love of God that is shown to us in the everyday, ordinary things, in the wonderfully, simply, painfully, awfully, ordinary business of ordinary living. And I think this part of the Christmas story, and even really of the biblical story, can be easy to miss or to overlook as our attention is grabbed, and understandably so, by all of the miraculous things that we read in the biblical narrative. But today, as we reflect on the birth of Jesus, I want to invite you to wonder with me at the way that God has loved us in the ordinary things. And to set us up to do this, I'm going to invite you to read Psalm 136 with me. And there are some passages of scripture that are just really subtle, and this is not one of them. It makes its point very plainly by repeating this refrain after every line, his love endures forever. And so as we read the psalm today, I'm going to ask you to help me by saying out loud and with a little bit of gusto, if you please, this refrain after every line. And I'd ask you to say it in whatever language is most comfortable for you to speak in and to pray in. So this refrain is all we will have up on the slides, but if you want to follow along with me as I read the whole psalm, you can find it on page 972 in the Red Bibles in the seats in front of you. We feeling ready? Ready. All right. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. His love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. 
but swept Pharaoh and his army into the sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. He gives food to every creature, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Do you get the idea that maybe the psalmist is trying to tell us something? From creation until now, God's goodness and his love resound throughout human history. And the summary that we get in Psalm 136 of the events that take place is not subtle. We read in a rush several of the high watermarks of the biblical story. God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's the only worker of wonders. He's the creator of the universe of night and day and time and tides. He, with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He divided the Red Sea to bring the Israelites safely through it and then sent it back into place to sweep away the armies of the Pharaoh. He led the Israelites through the wilderness bringing them victory over much more powerful nations until they were finally safely in the land that he had promised to Abraham because his love and his purposes endure through every obstacle. It's the kind of awe-inspiring story that can sustain a congregation through 26 repetitions of his love endures forever. And this story of God's love on full display finds its best expression in Jesus. And we see in the nativity story that same mighty hand and outstretched arm of the God who works wonders. Just at a cursory level, if we go through the story, there are miraculous babies and hosts of angels and a cosmic scavenger hunt and fulfilled prophecies and kept promises. And I would not take away one ounce of the wonder that comes from remembering and witnessing the staggering power of God as he brings about his centuries-old rescue plan to fruition. But I also wouldn't have us miss the opportunity to wonder at the way that God works through the ordinary. Because on the one hand, Mary and Joseph experienced the miraculous conception of a child by the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, Mary and Joseph have to deal with the miraculous conception of a child by the Holy Spirit. Sacred and miraculous, but also practically speaking, filled with stigma and shame. And then when Mary is as pregnant as a person can possibly be, she and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem for a census ordered by the Roman emperor, a journey of about 90 miles or a week's worth of walking. And I doubt it would have made Mary's journey any easier if she had known that it was happening to fulfill the words of the prophet that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It was just far and it was just walking. And then Jesus, the king of all creation, was born in a manger, in the animal room, in a family household, not even in the privacy of a designated barn or a shed. And then the host of angels that announced the birth of this king show up to shepherds on a hillside out of Bethlehem. 
Not the most prominent citizens, not the most righteous citizens, but the ones whose work was so relentless and all-consuming that they didn't have time to participate in the ceremonial cleanliness of the people of God. Their whole life was taken up in just the ordinary business of ordinary living. And then even if you go ahead later, the ones who travel from afar following the star in order to worship Jesus as king, they aren't the religious elite, they aren't the temple priests, they aren't the rulers of Judea or even of Samaria. They come from far, they're from Persia. And for the birth of the savior of all of humanity, it all just seems so ordinary, so wonderfully and simply and painfully and awfully ordinary. Because without downplaying any of the miraculous, God works in that ordinary business of ordinary living. And to me, this speaks like few other things to the depth of God's love for us. If you take a look through the biblical narrative, as we read about people encountering God, their response is often more fear and confusion than it is awe or wonder. We see it in the book of Exodus. The Israelites have been delivered from slavery in Egypt by the God who keeps his promises, and they finally come to rest at Mount Sinai where he renews his covenant with them and reminds them what it looks like for him to be their God and them to be his people. So God comes to meet with them on this mountain, and as the people begin to see the indications of his presence, there is smoke and there's thunder and there's lightning, they become afraid and they beg Moses to go and speak with God so that they don't have to. They stay back at a distance and they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. And it makes a kind of sense, right? They've seen this God at work. They know what he's like and they know what he can do. He is loving and he is good and he keeps his promises and he is holy and he's just and he's incomprehensible incomprehensibly powerful, and he is unstoppable. A favorite series of mine has long been C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, in which the lion, Aslan, allegorically represents God. And upon learning of his existence, the children, Susan, Lucy, and Peter, become concerned about the logistics of actually going to meet him in person, because he is, after all, a lion. And so Lucy and Susan ask their guides, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, if he really is quite safe. And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what this God is like. So consider for a moment then that this awe and even fear-inspiring God steps into human history not as a lion and not in fire and not in thunder and not in might, but as a little squishy baby, all dimpled cheeks and arm rolls and vulnerability. Not only did he take on our likeness, he is fully God and he is fully human, but he did it through the least threatening means. He met us in the ordinary and in the approachable. And then by his presence with us in the ordinary, he sanctifies the ordinary. He meets us in the everyday process of living and he makes it holy ground. The daily walk of raising children or going to work or paying bills or making budgets or greeting friends or walking your dog or helping neighbors or cleaning house or shoveling snow, all that is routine, 
all that feels wearisome becomes sacred as God meets us where we are. He loves us not just in the abstract and not just in the miraculous, but in the ordinary. And I think that this has always been God's way. We hear it if we listen closely, even among all the wonders of Psalm 136. The great creator God who spoke the world into being also ordered night and day, so the sun rises and sets. The strong hand and mighty arm that delivered his people from Egypt also led them through the wilderness, meeting their complaints with bread and water, food sufficient for every new day. He remembered his people, even in their lowest state, when they were beleaguered and beaten, when they were faithless and rebellious, when in the ordinary business of ordinary living they lost their way, even then his love endured. And in the final couplets of the psalm, the psalmist speaks of how God's love is displayed in his ongoing care, the daily provision of food for each creature. This is the God of heaven whose love endures forever in the ordinary as much as it does in the extraordinary. And the implications of this, for me at least, are twofold. First, it speaks to how God loves us. There are mountaintop, wonderful, exciting, high-water moments in all of our lives. When we get the job, or we get the house, or we hear good news, or our prayers are answered, or our relationships give us life, or our faith feels certain. And in these moments, it's really easy to remember that our God, who is the giver of good gifts, loves us. But then I think there are many, many more moments in all of our lives that are just ordinary, when it's just too much work and not enough vacation, or it's just cleaning the kitchen counter a hundred times every single day, or it's getting your fifth cold of the season, or it's losing someone that we love, or it's waiting for a good gift that seems to be given to everyone else but you, and it's all just so simply, wonderfully, painfully, awfully ordinary that we begin to wonder if maybe we've been passed over or forgotten, or if maybe the things we are working at don't matter. But the baby in a manger, surrounded by shepherds and animals and hay, reminds me that God stepped into our ordinary and he made it holy. He's waiting for you in those regular rhythms of morning coffee and busy work days and folding laundry and cleaning countertops. And then secondly, that God loves us in the ordinary, frees us to love him in the ordinary too. I think some of what begins to wear us down in seasons when life is just ordinary is this false idea that in order for something to matter or in order for something to have an impact, it needs to also be impressive or elaborate or Facebook worthy. But I also know that if I asked any one of you, you could tell me about someone in your life that God used to dramatically impact your spiritual journey, who changed the trajectory of your life. And all they did was show up in the ordinary. They just took us to coffee. They just prayed with us. They just told us about Jesus and showed us what he's like. They were just present. They just faithfully followed God through the ordinary processes of life, and God used their faithfulness in ways beyond their imaginings. 
And the Bible is full of people like this too. We read in the book of Luke about the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth who were righteous in the sight of God and observed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, trusting God through years and years of ordinary routines despite the fact that they couldn't have children. We read also in Luke about the prophet Simeon who was called righteous and devout, who had walked with God for a lifetime waiting to catch a glimpse of the Messiah. We read about Anna, also a prophet, who spent most of her life as a widow and spent her days worshiping at the temple day and night, fasting and praying as she waited expectantly for God to act. Interestingly enough, we know the least about the backstories of Mary and Joseph, but we do know that when each of them was confronted with the alarming news from an angel that Jesus himself would be born to Mary even though she was a virgin, they trusted and they obeyed. Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And Joseph took Mary as his wife. We know their names and we know their stories and we know the way that their lives were changed by God. But what they model for us isn't some extraordinary initiative or brilliant plan of their own making, but simply a faith that was the culmination of years and years of walking with God through the ordinary business of ordinary living. And God took their ordinary acts of love and he made them something more. And I have one more thought to share on this before I leave you, and it's going to seem a little up to off topic, but it will make sense, I promise. If we go back to the Old Testament and look at 1 Kings chapter 19, we read about Elijah, who is having just a terrible day. After having humiliated Queen Jezebel and King Ahab by defeating the prophets of Baal in the contest on, the, on Mount Carmel, in which God proved that he alone is God, Elijah has to flee for his life, and he runs so fast that he outruns Ahab's chariot, and eventually he makes his way to the wilderness, where he arrives exhausted and discouraged and desperately needing an encounter with God. And so God leads him to Mount Sinai, and he says, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and a voice said, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' That's my favorite part, just what are you doing here? Elijah is looking for an encounter with God and he finds it not in the spectacular and not in the dramatic, but in the ordinary, in a whisper. And what God whispers to him in this moment is one of my very favorite things. It's just, what are you doing here? And Elijah's kind of like, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I have been so zealous for you. The Israelites have rejected you, and they've rejected your covenant, and they've torn down your altars, and they've put your prophets to death, and I am the only one left, and I came here to look for you. 
And what I love about this is that God just sent him right back home. He told him to turn around, go back, and continue the work that was already happening, happening that Elijah hadn't been able to see. And I wonder if maybe we tend to do this too, if sometimes we become overwhelmed and discouraged and weary and we need an encounter with God. And so we drag our weary hearts to the ends of the earth, just looking desperately for him, only to be found by him and to hear him whisper, what are you doing here? I am with you. I've been with you all this way. We don't need to look far because God is with us right here in the ordinary. And I know that at least I am much more likely to do the Elijah and run around desperately searching for what is right in front of me. And I'm much more likely to do that than I am to be like Anna and just take my heart to the presence of God and wait for him. And because of that, because I know this about myself, I need to surround myself with tangible reminders that God is present with me in the middle of ordinary things. And I personally really recommend a giant pair of Christmas earrings, but I know that not all of you are going to go out and buy one and wear them every day. So I do have an alternative. And what it is, is a little liturgy. You can find it on the Welcome Center desk. It's called a liturgy for the ritual of a morning coffee. A little prayer to pray as you uh, incorporate it into an ordinary routine to anchor yourselves in the knowledge that God is with you in the middle of ordinary things. It's from a lovely little book called Every Moment Holy that helps me remember that God is with me in every moment. And I think these reminders for us are important because God meets us in the ordinary so that we can then love in the ordinary, in our interactions with strangers and family and coworkers, in the orientation and attitude of our hearts as we fulfill our obligations, in our sensitivity to the needs of others, in the ordinary, everyday acts of love, our lives take up that refrain of Psalm 136 and announce to a weary world that the love of God endures forever. So would you pray for, with me this morning in this ordinary moment? God, this morning we come and we are thankful that in Jesus you came to be where we are, to live where we live, to walk where we walk, to take our ordinary lives and make them holy. And God, we just ask that as we go from this place and pick up our routines, would you help us to encounter you inescapably in the ordinary routines of life? Would we hear you as we do dishes and walk our pets and clean our houses and answer emails? And God, would you make our lives echo the refrain that your steadfast love endures forever through the ordinary as much as in the extraordinary. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.